coming up on Art Palace. I found one called The Independent Eye that was published in Cincinnati, and I, I knew that I had to find it. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are artist and educator Mark Neely and John Flannery, designer and printmaker at Cryptogram. So how do you two know each other? It was common interest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just started connected talking. online. Yeah. Uh, I had seen his artwork, probably saw it around actually before mm-hmm. online yeah. um, posters and such. And when I decided to do the tribute paper, I immediately knew I should reach out to John because mm-hmm. I consider him sort of a printing guru <laughs> of sorts. And I'm, I'm very much an artist in the traditional sense. I'm, I'm not very good at putting something like that together and compiling it. So what do you mean by in the traditional sense? Like I just make the art. Um, (laughs) I'm not not very savvy on like just make the art guys. uh, (laughs) Publishing programs, like compiling it to make like print ready formats and stuff like that. Okay. Um, You're more like hands on working, working with your hands and just sort of like, okay, where's the pencils, the paint, that kind of stuff. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And what about you? Are you... Uh, I would say that I, since, you know, early days, like high school, even before then, when I sort of had an idea of what I wanted to do, you know, I saw the printmaker as very much a designer and an artist in their own right. Um, Mm -hmm. They help artists to realize their work on the page after it's, like, left their mind. So, like, therefore, they need to understand how all of that works. Mm So, um, yeah, I, I went to the Art Academy, and I was basically just like enamored with their print program and knew that I wanted to um, be a designer, but through the the lens of print, through the vehicle of print. Okay. So um, it's always been a hand-in-hand sort of thing to me um, to be a designer and a printmaker as well. So so tell me a little bit about the, the project you guys are working on right now. Uh, yeah, in the beginning, um, what happened was I had read a book last year called Free Press, and it was essentially about the movement in the late 1960s where underground newspapers started being published uh, around the country. They were primarily war resistance papers with Vietnam going on, and they're really beautiful, uh, the artwork, the design. Um, this was, of course, uh, all done using uh, collage and various uh, print methods that John could explain better than I could. (laughs) Um, And after reading that book, I stumbled on a list of hundreds of papers that were published in the U.S., and I found one called The Independent Eye that was published in Cincinnati, and I, I knew that I had to find it. I was just enamored by it. I first reached out to anyone I knew in local creative circles, and nobody had heard of it. Um, I had one response from uh, Steve Schmall. He runs uh, Black Plastic Records. Okay. Um, and he gave me this really funny response like, 
back in the 90s, I was living in a communal space in Clifton, and I saw these on a coffee table or something. And um, I got in touch. He gave me the name of the landlord whose papers they were. I caught him, and he had no idea what I was talking about. So uh, all dead ends. I then discovered our library had um, not the whole collection, but a large portion of the archives kind of locked away in their rare book room downtown. So I, my wife and I went in one Saturday, and uh, as soon as we opened the collection, we were just completely taken by it. Uh, we were really stunned, not only at how well designed and the scope, the content of the paper, but that it was such a mystery. We kind of felt like we stumbled on this treasure chest that no one knows about. Um, when I was giving the collection back, one of the librarians working said, hey, why are you interested in this? Mm-hmm. He said, you should do something with this. You should make a program for us. He then got out his phone and called his friend, Jim Tarbell, and just handed me the phone on the spot. Uh, <laughs> Here, talk to Jim. <laughs> yeah, whole no, whole no what to do. And, uh, and Jim was very, uh, very friendly to me. He, he said, oh, I remember the Independent Eye. And he gave me the name to a woman named Ellen, who was one of the original publishers. Uh, I then spoke to Ellen. She's still uh, a practicing psychologist in the Clifton area. I called her out of the blue. She seemed pretty shocked. Uh, <laughs> that like anybody knew about this? Yes, still? Yeah. or had any interest. And yeah. um, really, everything has happened since then. This was last November. I've since met with Ellen. Um, I went to Ellen's house in this beautiful historic mansion on Clifton Avenue. And I walked in and she said, oh, here's the big communal paper where we put the original paper together. So it was actually the original house where the paper was published. Um, I've spent the last year researching the paper, speaking with different staff members, um, and preparing um, uh, an exhibit, an event at the fall at the library. We're also digitizing the entire collection that the library has. And then finally, um, I partnered with John to create a tribute paper to the Independent Eye, where we reached out to about 14 local artists I think the artist in me kicked in and I wanted to do something visual with Mm -hmm. the project. We reached out to local artists that uh, we either knew or just knew of their work and um, created kind of a mission statement that we're making this paper. We wanted each artist to contribute one piece. um, And I kept it pretty open-ended, just kind of keeping the original spirit of the eye in mind. If you were making something today, you know, what would you make and put on the paper? Tell me a little bit more about those original papers and what they're like, you know, just what does it, what do they look like? What do they, what's the content like? Uh, they are full broadsheet papers. Uh, so a standard size newspaper on fine newsprint. They're very radical, very progressive in their political scope. It was obviously a very turbulent time in the late sixties. And, uh, you had the civil rights movement going on. You had, Uh, the women's liberation movement. When we opened the archive, one of the first covers we stumbled upon was an ad for the International Women's March back in 1971. Mm -hmm. And we immediately made that connection to today's sociopolitical climate. And then the artwork is full of uh, everything from uh, political cartoons, comic strips, 
Uh, also commentary on both the political and national level. Uh, really beautiful linoleum cut prints. Um, there's a really beautiful linoleum cut print of Martin Luther King Jr. that was published in the April of 68 um, edition when he was assassinated. Mm. Uh, and, and these were all local artists primarily. Uh, sometimes there would be syndicated cartoonists who had comic strips and things like that. Um, and then another thing about the paper is it gives you this glimpse into kind of that counterculture movement through a local lens. Um, you see all sorts of original advertisements for concerts at the Ludlow Garage and, um, John and I loved looking at all of the original advertisements for record stores and hippie boutiques all around the city and, mm-hmm. and experimental film screenings and, and pretty much anything that was going on at that time, primarily like around Calhoun Street, okay. around UC and, and things like that. So it's very multi-nuanced, um, but they're, they're absolutely gorgeous and amazing to look through. What was your kind of take, John, on them seeing them as a printmaker? Did you have any sort of reactions to the imagery and the way things were made right off the bat? Or um, For me, it was just like I'm very much in tune to the history of like how like Cincinnati has like a sphere of creativity like was and like in its own little bubble. So I've always just made connections like through my life of mm-hmm. where these things come from. So for me, it was just cool to like to see like a full archive of like an actual scene that was present and like very lively here it was like pretty eye opening to me. Um, I've always like looked to other cities for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so to see that existing here was like one of the biggest aha moments for me um, and kind of connected a lot of other dots that I'd, you know, seen here and there. Um, but from a printmaking aspect, yeah, it just like strengthens the backbone of printmaking being for everyone and being like a very democratic way to produce art. Um, you know, much of the stuff in there was, uh, like you said, like re- relief printmaking, which is essentially just, you know, uh, carving away from a surface and inking it up and, you know, putting it on the paper. And it's, it's pretty much as easy as it comes as as democratic as it gets Mm -hmm. as far as like producing an image so i've always like been attracted to you know that style um but becoming more of like a working professional it it makes a lot of sense to me why this was so popular back then because you know there's there's different ways of like creating images but these ways are just so much more like visceral and and momentary you know that like it, it makes a lot of sense why they were in these papers um Whereas, like, I don't know, when I was a kid, I was probably just looking at it thinking, like, that was that was the hippie kind of way to do things or whatever. And, right. and it is, but it's also, like, you know, coming full circle, like, finding out why it was because of that. Um, so from, like, a submission standpoint, you know, you have all these people doing uh, woodcut prints or whatever things that were just like almost stencil based. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole other side of printmaking, which is the actual like production of the, the paper itself, the magazine, which was often just like, you know, everyone of that time sort of knew the basic skills to mock up a paper to like send something to a printer, which going back to like what I was saying about my love for design and print coming together and, you know, wanting to like, access that through the art academy like um you know everyone had these skills whereas today it's not necessarily taught like if you're a designer like 
you might not know how to like take that into multiple formats after it's like left your brain or the screen that you composed it on, you know, in the computer. Um, so that's always just been really fascinating to me is that like there was this communal knowledge of how to really put something out there in like a massive effect way. And the playing field was so much more level back then because like they were dealing with the same tools and like ways of, of, uh, disseminating information as like a national paper was mm. so like they were talking to the same printers often you know like a lot of um the printers who would make these papers were you know they were made on the same presses that might have made a national newspaper mm. you know so it's like everything was just so much more there's your print shop down there and like it can do a b and c and you can use it for this corporation sort of outlet or you can like come together as a community raise some money and like make your own paper and make 500 of them you know mm. like so I, that's always just been really interesting to me just like the free press literally i mean it's it's such a tool to be used it, it's a very powerful tool and i think that's why the paper was such a, a blacklisted kind of thing or anybody who was doing this in the 70s is because they like took the tools that these big companies had or these big media outlets had and they used it in ways that like those people didn't want them to use it um but again it's it's freedom of the press and it's amazing i don't know it's and this was just a touch on that this era was really the first time that that free press really gained momentum it was the first time that these papers in the hundreds started being published um sometimes from my research you know the circulation would be in the thousands and people who had conflicting reports on let's say the war social or national politics music whatever the case may be that is where they got their news. And John had mentioned looking at other cities. There were a couple prominent underground papers, such as the San Francisco Oracle that was published right in the kind of Mecca in Haight-Ashbury in mm -hmm. that era. Uh, the East Village Other from New York City. That's where a lot of the underground comics artists like Robert Crumb started out mm -hmm. on those papers. So um, there are a few that people are aware of in those bigger cities where we think of kind of the vanguard of this movement happening. So I, I'm right there with John that to see that we had our own and to see really just how amazing they were put together. Um, I think that kind of spoke to both of us. It seems like you both were sort of surprised on some level that this happened in Cincinnati, right? For sure. Yeah. I think probably no surprise to anyone listening to this, that Cincinnati has a reputation of being a historically conservative city. Yeah. And, you know, um, I've spoke at length to a lot of the staff members of the original paper who have talked about uh, how ostracized they felt um, doing this, not in a negative way. They're, they're proud of what they did, mm -hmm. but it was a challenge here. Everything from being spied on, attending peaceful protests to, um, you know, uh, I'll go ahead and jump into uh, something that happened in the early 70s with the paper. That's one of the most interesting parts of the story. There was a fire at the uh, house where the paper was being published. And um, s several of the staff members uh, actually lived in that building. And it was ruled an arson. Several members of the staff claimed that they were not allowed in the building after it was condemned and that they witnessed uh, local police uh, breaking into filing cabinets and stealing their subscription lists. 
and things like that. There's a, an article published in the Independent Eye about it that provides photographs of broken in filing cabinets and things like that. Later into the 80s, they actually uh, filed a lawsuit against the city of Cincinnati police that uh, sadly didn't go anywhere. Mm. Um, but there's actually articles about that in the Cincinnati Inquirer in the oh, 1980s okay. about the fire. So, you know, they found out that, you know, the FBI had even looked into these underground papers. Really? Yeah, because wow. they were seen as dangerous and... Yeah, and that's going back to just like, you know, they were using the tools that people were familiar with to create, you know, the, your morning paper. You right. know, it was the same format, so it almost felt, you know, like people could take the news in the same way, you know, and that was like anti-state at that time. So you talked a little bit about some of the people you found who were involved with it. I mean, do you know any more people who, have you learned any more about the, the people who actually made the paper? I do. Um, meeting with Ellen, one of the original publishers, was really fantastic. Ellen and her her uh, ex-husband, uh, they started the paper with another couple who was from Yellow Springs. Okay. Uh, the paper actually started in Yellow Springs, and it moved to Cincinnati very shortly after um, in the coming months. It has been quite a challenge to track people down, um, as you can imagine, this was uh, over 50 years ago, and uh, basically what I've done is uh, periodically the paper would post uh, a very small paragraph of staff members, and I would essentially um, try to use the magic of the internet uh, to to track people down. And um, at first, I was kind of ambivalent towards this, but as time went on, I kind of felt it was my duty to try to reach out to them, to let them know about the project and just speak to them briefly. And it's been extremely rewarding. Uh, when I have found people, um, everyone has seemed genuinely touched that I have an interest in it. And mm -hmm. they're also very excited to see the digital archive we're creating because most of them haven't seen the paper in that many years. Yeah. Um, some of the people I've spoken to include uh, Melvin Greer, who is a prominent, still uh, local photojournalist mm -hmm. and photographer. I had a great conversation with Melvin. Uh, he started, essentially, uh, his first photography job was working for the Independent Eye, and his name is credited to many of the original photographs. It was funny, Melvin ended up uh, being a photographer for the Cincinnati Post for over 30 years, so we kind of laughed about his... Uh, peculiar career trajectory, right. starting with a radical underground paper and then moving on to a mainstream paper. Uh, I spoke to Ken Hawkins, another photojournalist who uh, both he and Melvin have had uh, work featured nationally, um, Time Magazine, clients like that. I, I spoke to uh, a doctor in Martha's Vineyard uh, named Gerald Yukovich, who uh, called and left a message and uh, he called me back. He He's now a doctor there. And he joked and said, yeah, I remember watching Joe Namath win the Super Bowl in the living room where we were putting the paper together to illustrate how long ago it was. Frank Gerson, who uh, is often credited as starting the Free Store Food Bank, oh, okay. um, he has since passed. But um, he was one of the original uh, street hawkers of the paper. He was able to distribute the most papers uh, around town. So I've spoken to a lot. It's difficult to find names, and also 
There were a lot of females working for the paper who were, of course, using their maiden name Mm. in their late teens, early 20s. Also, a lot of people who might have been living here going to UC or a local college and then moved away immediately. So it's been very challenging, but very rewarding for the ones I have been able to speak to. Tell me a little bit about the exhibition you have planned at the public library. Yeah, the exhibition is going to be on November 13th at 7 p.m., Uh, We are going to have on display a lot of the original papers, uh, which are very beautiful. Um, And we're going to have a small panel discussion there Mm -hmm. with uh, myself, Ellen, the original publisher, and uh, Jim Tarbell. Okay. Just recently got confirmation that he's going to be there. So, and uh, the digital archive should be up and running right about in time for that. Okay. We're really excited about the tribute paper that we're putting together. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting mix of uh, local artists. You know, we've got some that work for local arts organizations like Visionaries and Voices and uh, Artworks. And then also some people who just doodle and, yeah, freelance or do their art as a hobby. John, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about literally how we're going to put it together and the printing method. Uh, Yeah, so we just aim to pretty much um, employ like as many authentic tools of production as possible. Okay. We're going to try to go completely computerless. Oh, Um, nice. That's really cool. May use the computer as like a visual layout just to see pagination, like how Mm -hmm. it will flow. But essentially it'll just be done. Masters will be made with the use of a copier and then the actual book will be made on a risograph, which is um, just about the closest you can come to the original uh, production method. Um, Originally it was produced on a web press, which is uh, the same as you would print a newspaper. So it's a very large machine and there's just not access to that. Um, <clears throat> like there was then. Um, a risograph is basically a, a hybrid of a silkscreen and a copier machine. Oh, okay. Um, so it looks just like a copier, but essentially it works like a silkscreen or an offset process in that you print one color at a time. So mm-hmm. uh, if you have a two-color job, you print all of your, your red first, and then you put the whole edition back in the press and switch out the color drum, yeah. and you print black second. Um, but it has a really uh, in-the-page feel, like very much... Uh, like Offset does on a newspaper, the ink is not raised at all. Um, it's got its own sort of machine-like way of distilling images from grayscale to just pure black and white. Um, so that's really interesting and like very akin to like the original production method. And then we'll like be doing a silkscreen cover, which is like pretty familiar with uh, mid-century printmaking and you know especially commercial. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to do that. Um, source some some old paper. Uh, which we've been sort of doing some research about, but basically just trying to keep it to where it doesn't feel too fresh and, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that it's like democratic enough where it affords us the opportunity to just give them away or sell them for almost nothing because they were sold between what, like nothing and 25 cents back then. Yeah. um, (laughs) Inflation. Inflation, right, right. But um, we're producing, you know, probably 150 and once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. And, uh, the digital archive, too, I just want to say, I, I, I think that might be the most important part of the yeah. whole project because mm-hmm. um, the library has a, a world-class department in that way. They've, they've digitized uh, many periodicals, and I know that, that the scanning has been completed. I know they're in the editing process mm. for that now, but for me, working on this project for a year, um, you know, I think it's so significant that that's going to be the, the permanent 
piece to it. It's, okay. it's going to be an archive that will always exist. And, um, you know, my hope is that not only these previous generations who have never seen it will get a chance, but also future generations and will allow uh, the people that were there to revisit it for the first yeah. time. Yeah, I think especially in Cincinnati, it's important for people to see that digital archive because, you know, there's obviously this culture of people, you know, within the last few years, like standing up super strong for what they believe in and, you know, not backing down. And I feel like in a a city like Cincinnati, it can be hard to, like, keep that in mind and, like, stay strong, you know, when you feel like maybe you're the only person doing this or you're part of a very small group. But to see that it does have a lineage in such a conservative city, I think, is, like, hugely important for people to just see and be aware of and know that they're not alone. And I I think people will be absolutely floored and shocked when they get a chance to look at it. I really do. Yeah. Cool. Well, normally at this point in the show, I would take us out to the galleries to go look at something in the actual museum (laughs) to talk about it. Um, But today I thought in the spirit of what you've been talking about, I thought this would be a great opportunity to look at something that probably a lot of people don't know about that we have at the museum, which is an artist book collection. Um, that's housed in our library, which we kind of walked through today to uh, get <laughs> to get here, and we picked these up. Um, so these are from uh, the Mary R. Schiff Library and Archives, and I honestly like. I can't remember if I've actually looked through all of these yet. So it's just going to be kind of like, let's open this box and see what's in here. Um, Sure. So John, this one actually, I didn't know you went to the art Academy, but this one might be interesting to you. So this one uh, I was looking at um, and I'm assuming it's made by was a class Mm. probably that made this project and I don't know, donated it to the library, Uh, but it's called letterpress toys. I actually was there at the time this was made, so I probably will know some people. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm not even sure. I didn't look through it too completely, but I saw it today. But yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, these artist books are sort of uh, handmade um, and have sort of, you know, interesting packaging and and sort of, you know, this one is just in a a sort of box that's sort of full of things, which is is a... Love a good folio. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. There's a... Beautiful little pillow here. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that corresponds with a a letter to Santa about a new pillow. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love when letterpress is done on like not letterpress paper. Like the, this is like photo glossy paper. Yeah. Um, but it's totally still got that letterpress touch to it. It's beautiful. That's nice. Little pop goes the weasel uh, <laughs> visual poetry here. Oh, that's wow. awesome. <laughs> Is there, uh, there was a little book that said something, I think it's that blue one. Do you, can I see that, please? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted about, to look through about this. About the edition. Okay, so this was... Yeah, it's got the artist in there. Yeah, so Jane Marks was the assistant. I remember her. <laughs> Peter Bartle was the teacher. Oh my gosh, uh, I, I do know people in here. This is crazy. Uh, <laughs> Kripa Asrani, who was from India and who was living with some of my friends actually at the time. Nice. Um, Emily Horning, who I know pretty well. Yeah, a lot of these names are are pretty familiar. Did you go to the art academy? I did. Nice. Yeah, I graduated in two thousand three. So cool. The uh, this is just the year before that. So that's nice. why I was like, when I saw the date, I was like, oh, I probably am going to know somebody yeah. who, who is in here. So 
That's really cool. Who taught you uh, letterpress? Was it Dave? I did not. I did not take oh, okay. any letterpress classes. Gotcha. So I was uh, actually here's another one too. And then we can kind of put back in there. I'm just kind of like happy to look through this stuff too because yeah. I don't know how many people ever get to like see it. You know, oh, like um, of course of it's really not hard. I mean, I know uh, we have classes who come in and check it out, or there's book arts associations and things who come in and check it out. Um, this was another one. I'm gonna. It's actually at the bottom here because it's so big. But this was another one that I thought had maybe a cool relationship to what you're doing. Are those like yard signs. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So it's called Urban Haiku. Wow. Is this local? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Try yeah. So there's a little page there describing the project. Okay. That's awesome. So a lot of local businesses contributed to this Urban Haiku. I see. Camp Washington Chili, Everybody's Records, some good previous ones too, like Crazy Ladies Bookstore in Northside. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Comet. There was actually a, an ad for Crazy Ladies in the Eye, I think. Was there? Yeah, I'm pretty oh, sure. Okay, yeah, we talked about in the Independent Eye all of the, the local businesses at that time. Yeah, there could have been a few on here. Uh, so this was from, oh, I was curious about the date. So it was October 1999 through March 2000, it says. And it looks like, so they are. Six months. I'm assuming they're, they are all literal haikus. I can't. It, it, I the think one they you, are, yeah. It looks like it. The blink Three of lines. an eye. Is that the one you just mm, had? Yeah. yeah. So there was, so they, they were. Who, did they, does it say on there who wrote them? I was kind of curious about that. Um, individual artist grant to poet Timothy Riordan. He was he oh, was yeah, from the like city there's... Department of Neighborhood Services. Okay, like there's two poems, and they were distributed to okay. uh, different businesses in these sort of like hot color, um, corrugated plastic signs, which been... which are pretty famous with the uh, the political sign right, season right yeah uh, which we're about to be in <laughs> finley market caldy's suitors art store oh man caldy's <laughs> so good a lot of mix of former and present here. yeah yeah that's fantastic this would have been just right around the time actually i started at the art academy uh-huh. so i va- i kind of have a vague memory of this project yeah but now that i see it i'm like yeah i kind of remember these weird signs especially in everybody's yeah, yeah so i i kind of had a sort of like it was hovering out there like i think i remember this but i you know i didn't know a lot about it i did want to mention real quick uh what's that other name john i didn't want to leave that one out uh, oh yeah so it was Timothy and uh, Diana Duncan Holmes. Okay. Yeah, this one is a little bit like those two were very like homemade, and this one is like a much more like big name artist. So it's a much more like professionally produced book. Um, but oh, this right. is Jenny uh, Holzer, Jenny Holzer yeah, yeah. book, just called Eating Through Living. I think mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah. So it's 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 a little more straightforward than some of the books here because it's it's you know looks like a book <laughs> mm-hmm. right 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 but it's kind of full the of the layout's a little unconventional which yeah is cool. and it's yeah. full of these sort of if uh, people know our jenny holzer bench that's mm-hmm. on the third floor she's kind of famous for these what she calls truisms these mm-hmm. statements that mm-hmm. are um you know so much of her art is just text-based and then the text delivered through these different methods in that case like a marble bench, uh, but she uses LEDs, uh, displays, mm-hmm. different uh, different ways of getting those messages across. And so this one is a book, um, it's, it, but it also has like little illustrations in it too. Yeah, which it I looks thought was, like uh, Peter Naden, Naden, uh, yeah, the did, illustrator. Yeah, did some mix of like really clean spot illustrations and really messy 
sketches. Uh, sketches. Yeah. 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 And so this was 1981, I think I saw. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of an interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Little project. I'm like just kind of poking around, like, hmm, what do we? Kind of has that classic hardcover, like you'd, um, you know, beneath beneath the uh, the dust, dust jacket. jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That book binding linen. Yeah, right. yeah, it's yeah. Lovely. This one here is pretty cool. I, I was, uh, I'll let you guys discover that all of its sort of layers. This one's called Waterfish. Oh, it's oh, okay. kind of like water slash fish. Um, uh, by Lois Morrison. Is that the name on it there? Uh, yes, Lois Morrison. Okay, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so VHS? I love this. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it's a VHS box. Wow. <laughs> oh, I love this. It's like a, a hammerhead shark on the cover. Oh, this is from the Women's Studio Workshop in uh, New York. Yeah, they're still still around. Are they? Actually, yeah. Oh, this is really beautiful, actually. Check this out. Whoa. That yeah. texture, wow. it's almost like a... Paper what cut. is the word for that? It's yeah. textured in a way. It's like rice paper or something. Yeah, it was like it was a one color red printed on yellow rice paper and then cut out and and collaged on or uh, just like pasted on top of a white box. It's kind of like a card box, like a deck of cards. Oh, but then it like has this nice bifold opening, like wow. a gatefold. And wow, this is crazy. It's all like cut out die cut sheets, two color printed, different colors and strung together with this like wavy fabric of sorts. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, the fabric looks like water. It's bound in a way that like reminds me of like a Jacob's ladder. Yeah, yeah. toy like with the ribbon like kind of alternating on either side. Yeah, yeah. Actually, now let me see that. I wanted to try something. (laughs) Now that I said that, after I was like, it's like a Jacob's ladder. I'm like, can you? Like, oh, like switch it around or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering. I don't want to break it, though. Yeah, you can. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. That's insane. Oh, wow, it does it, yeah. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> that, is, that really is. I, I didn't try this earlier. So it's, <laughs> it's truly wavy. Yeah, it even refers to Jacob's Ladder uh, in the description. Yeah, when you picked it up, I just saw that. I was like, I wonder if that will work. Like, <laughs> yeah. 1988. I don't think I've ever seen a book bound like a Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like that's really intricate. As we're that's reading crazy. the details here, yeah, it's um, fish-shaped pages printed with lino cuts. That that's truly uh, a one-of-a-kind piece. Yeah, and even the fabric it's bound with is printed. There's like fish, and then there's oh, like dye splatters. Like I to saw the water. water. I didn't even see the fish on there. Yeah, really cool piece. This one I, I opened. This is another kind of. I'll let you guys put that one away, since it's it's got a lot of like since it's parts. Got VHS case. <laughs> yeah. That really threw me off. Back in the VHS. <laughs> I know that was my favorite part too. Opening in just a VHS box, like, and then you're like, what? Yeah. There's the so many thing? layers because you get then you open that, and there's another box, and right. then you open that, and you're like, what is this? This is the best printed. This pieces. one is also I, I opened. I was pretty like, what am I? And I don't even know if I went too many levels deep, but this is by Christine Kermer. Wow. The iridescence of this immediately. Yeah. Crazy. It's so I pretty. I know how to go about opening this. Um, I think you just, oh yeah, you just yeah, it's it. not too hard, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like very like a box that's hinged, but it's so like, it's so beautiful on yeah, the outside. It feels like in an ocean. Yeah. It's, oh, there's even some ceramic in here. Wow. Oh, it's it's like, like inlaid. That's crazy. Oh. I think it's actually the back of the box and they put like a resin on top yeah over here too yeah, there's there's numbers um all kinds of little elements almost reminds you of like you know yeah a, a child like 
poking in the wet cement. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's got that, the texture of it does. I mean, it's just, it has that cement quality to it. Yeah. It does. And then there's even a little bit of that cement stuff they put inside this little book, which wow. is inside the box. And it, it looks like it's just like a sandpaper sort of texture, but and it really it, stands out. And it says it's a Belgium artist book on the interior. I picked up this one. I was just looking at it. It's called Smoke in My Dreams by Mark Wagner. I was looking at it, and there's this page that I, I've i never seen before. I mean, most of it's very, like, kind of collage stuff going on. but uh, And it feels very handmade. Certainly the binding. But there was, like, a page where there was, like, that one there, where it's, like, stuff kind of... Oh, this one. I think it's that one. There was something almost like very, it felt like between the pages and the like. Oh, right. Yeah, here. there's several of these. Oh, wow, yeah. So it's, it's just a little short fold. Short fold opening. Yeah, it's like little secret messages between the pages. Uh-huh. That's so cool. For me, I, I that's the first time I've seen that in a book, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It's like a duplex, but only half duplex, like. So you can hide something. Yeah, and I was just kind of flipping through, and my finger just kind of caught it, and I was like, "Oh, what's this?" It's <laughs> really interesting. Probably how it was originally designed. You know? Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. like, "That's really cool." I've never, I've never kind of experienced that, and I think that's one of the fun things about artist books is they sort of can take the very idea of what a book is, uh, and you right. can like really subvert that and sort of play with people's expectations. You know, in this one, yeah. it feels pretty straightforward compared to some of these other ones. I I think John and I also love collage in yeah. general, and That's this great. is very reminiscent of the collage in the Independent Eye, mm-hmm. a little more abstract. Yeah. Um, of course, theirs was printed, but um, you know, it's just that childlike. You cut something out and paste it, mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating. The results here. Yeah, these are all just like motifs from Camel cigarettes packaging. It looks like right put together in different different organizations. Paired with letterpress and like real sort of galactic uh, style treatments of the page, like real deep blues and, you know, feels very like astronomical. That's probably enough books for you guys, but... Uh, I mean, it's we, never, it's we never I know, I know. I, I would have brought more, but yeah. At a certain yeah. point, I was like, oh, that's probably all my arms can carry. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we'd be doing the project if we didn't like to uh, right. dig, dig through old archives. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming and being my guest today. Yeah, thank you. This Thanks was for having us. Sure. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Kimono, Refashioning Contemporary Style, and No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man, which closes on September 2nd, Labor Day. Join us on September 21st at 1 p.m. for an artist workshop with Pam Kravitz. This worked, so bring your friends and family to share in a creative art-making experience. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofrand Musicale by Bacalao. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or rating. And you can also take our survey, which helps us learn more about our listeners at cincinnatiartmuseum.org slash podcast. 
I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. 